0: Now you know why it took me three years to get my courage up to present that one. First meeting I had with the creative team on this, I said, this one's crazy even for me, so, but it's going to be a great series. I do want to start today by saying something that you may have heard before. We need to have a serious talk. Maybe it was your parents who said that to you. It could be your boss. It could be your husband or wife, but you sort of know what you're in for when someone says we need to have a serious talk, and today for all of us here watching online, watching on television, we need to have a serious talk. And the talk is about this, why did Jesus die? We all know that the universal symbol of Christianity is a cross. We wear it in jewelry, we, we have pictures, we, we may draw the symbol, we have a cross outside of our church building. When you see a cross, you know that there is something that has to do with Christians. There are all varieties of Christians, but we know that the cross is a universal symbol of Christianity. And when anyone asks, why is the cross the symbol of Christianity, the answer will come back, well, Jesus died. But the question that we need to ask ourselves today, and a question that rarely gets asked by the culture, and frankly rarely gets asked by the church, is why did Jesus have to die? When you think about Jesus dying on the cross, the most excruciating death known to mankind— When the Carthaginians invented crucifixion, there had never been such a cruel form of capital punishment. When we look at Jesus dying on the cross for us, it begs the question, what is is the equal offense? Because, well, let's just say it, let's put it this way. Let's take a modern application of this. Suppose someone had to go to prison for life because of something I did. Well, we would know that that person is not going to prison for life for a light offense. That person is not going to prison for life for driving five miles over the speed limit, you would know that I did something very wrong and I was in some very serious jeopardy. See, it's like an algebraic equation. It has to equal out. The death of Jesus on the cross is such a big, heavy thing that there has to be something big and heavy on the other side. And I think that even among Christians, there is a sense of, well, Jesus died on the cross for me because he loved me. Good point, but that doesn't really tell the story, does it? I mean, if we were just to pull back and objectively evaluate the death of Jesus on the cross, the question we would need to ask is why? Why did Jesus have to die? And if he did have to die for us, why did he die on a cross? It follows that we've done some things that were really wrong. It, It follows that. The price he has to pay is contingent upon some real heavy stuff. And then beyond that, it also communicates something that we don't hear very much. And that is, we must have been in some very serious jeopardy to equal the cross. See, we never talk about hell anymore much in Christianity because it's not politically politically correct, which that's an oxymoron. It's a contradiction of terms. But what we have to understand is, if Jesus died, if he had to go through the death on the cross, we must have been in some very heavy-duty jeopardy that led to that. And so that's the question that we want to ask today. Well, if you want to know why Jesus had to die on the cross, we must understand that it's not something that we're going to be able to sit around in a circle and figure out on our own. The Bible tells us that this is something that has to be revealed to us by God. God has ultimately revealed himself to mankind in two ways. The first way that God has revealed himself is through creation. God believes that creation is such that mankind has no other option but to see his presence in creation. It's amazing to me. I read a lot of books and a lot of works from authors who write about biology, write about the body that we have, And these are writers who don't believe in God. They're they're non-theists. But I'm always amazed at how many times they use the word designed. The body is designed. The body is programmed. And at some point, I want to wonder, is there any sanity left? I know there's a lot of intelligence. I don't question that for a moment. A lot of brilliance in many of those writers. But I do wonder is there any sanity there because how can a person say on one hand as they speak about the incredible encoding of DNA that we barely even understand and if a person writes about that who is a nontheist and says we are programmed well then that would require a programmer wouldn't it and in effect that person is saying with great specification and great intelligence, we are very sophisticated, and yet on the other hand is saying it all happened by accident. Well, you must understand that God believes the way God sees it. Nature reveals Him to the place where people who reject the existence of God are without excuse. Romans chapter 1 says that word for word. So God reveals Himself through nature. But even though God reveals himself through nature, we really don't have the full understanding of the specifics. And so in order to reveal himself to us, God gave us his word. That is what the Bible is. It is God's revealed word to us. And through God's word, we meet God. As I just said, to go back and retract. Can you meet God through nature? Absolutely. I worship God through nature just driving around and seeing spring in Wichita. I'm from Texas. Spring used to start there in February. I grieve for like March and April waiting for spring. So yeah, I meet God when I see the beautiful Bradford pear trees blossoming out there. But it doesn't really tell me why Jesus had to die. Now, The Bible tells us over and over why Jesus died, but perhaps the most succinct statement comes to us in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and Paul is going to preface a statement by saying, by this gospel, you are saved. Gospel, that means good news. Saved, that means when you die, you go to heaven and you live forever and you're God's child. So let's just pull back for a moment and review what Paul said. Paul said, this is the good news by which you go to heaven. So I'm all ears. I want to hear what he has to say next. What is this good news? You got to join a church, got to do community service. You know, to, you know what is the good news? Listen. He said, I've received what I passed on to you as, as first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul is saying, this is the good news that gets you into heaven. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried, and he was raised again to life on the third day. That's what makes these three services, this week's, next week's, and Easter's, so important because we are just tracking with what Paul says is a transformative gospel. But the very first part of that is a statement that says, Christ died for our sins. So today, if we look at the cross and we see Jesus dying this excruciating death for six hours, hanging on a Roman cross, and we ask the question, why? The answer comes back, that he died for our sins. But you know, when we say Christ died for our sins, I think a lot of times we're leaving out an important phrase. Christ died to pay God for our sins. See, oftentimes we look at this in a kind of existential sense in the church and sort of a postmodern concept. Jesus is full of love. He loves us so much that he went to the cross to show us how much he loved us. Well, his death shows us how much he loves us, but that's not the point. The point is Jesus died on the cross to pay God for our sins. Well, therein lies a the question because in the w- day that you and I live, there are a lot of people that think that sin is an irrelevant concept, and that's not necessarily new. Many of you know about the Menninger Clinic here in Kansas. It's a world-famous psychological psychiatric clinic. Carl Menninger wrote a book in 1973. the, The book is okay, but the title is awesome. The title he wrote was, Whatever Became of Sin? And in our world today, we don't hear much about sin, do we? We hear about mistakes. A mistake is leaving the milk out overnight. Sin is doing something wrong that violates a holy God. But in our, if there is such a thing as sin in a postmodern world today, I don't mean just outside the church, I mean inside the church. If there is such a thing as sin, God has sort of been edged out of the issue. Sin today, in today's terms, sin is looked at as something that's either done against ourselves or done against someone else. And hey, I'm not knocking that. There is an element in which that's true. When we sin, it harms ourselves, it harms others. But that's not what sin is. But if there are things that are sin that our culture agrees on, first of all, our culture has to agree on it, because as we know, in our culture today, there are things that are absolutely perverse that our culture celebrates, and there are things that are wrong that our culture says are wrong. So typically today, if sin exists, it has to be something the culture agrees on, and then it has to be something that hurts self or hurts others. And because we've redefined sin, we've had to redefine judgment and salvation. I'm going to be really careful about what I'm going to say because I could lead someone to think I'm saying something I'm not. So just please hear me, hear me out completely. But in our world today, if there are such things as sin, then there's sort of a cultural judgment and cultural salvation that goes with it. For instance, if, if a person is a compulsive gambler, I think most people would agree that that is some form of sin. Well, what is the judgment for being a compulsive gambler? You can't pay your bills. So what is the salvation for a compulsive gambler? Treatment. Now, again, if a person is a compulsive gambler, treatment is a wonderful thing. I'm not knocking that for a moment. I'm just saying that doesn't pay for the sin. If a person abuses alcohol or drugs, is that a sin? I think... Yeah, you know, I think most people would say, yeah, you know, if a person is is abusive to substances and harms themselves and harms others and puts puts the culture at risk, that, that that probably is a sin. So what is the judgment for that sin? Well, the judgment is you have to live with the problems of addiction and the people that love you have to deal with those problems. Well, what's the salvation? Rehab. Now, again, please, don't don't, don't get me wrong. I stand first in line to be appreciative of rehab. I'm just saying, I think we've got a really skewed idea of what sin and judgment and salvation are. Oh, anger. We're doing a series called Volatile. It starts in in just a few weeks. Now, Volatile is going to be talking a lot about anger. So is anger a sin, especially abusive anger? I think we just about universally agree on that one. Well, what is the judgment for anger? Well, you can harm your body, you can harm yourself physiologically, and beyond that, it it harms relationships. Well, then what is the salvation for anger? Anger management. Again, I stand first in line to be for anger management, but I'm just telling you, that's not, that definition of sin is not the way God looks at it. Judgment is sure not the way God looks at it, and salvation is infinitely not how God looks at it. But that's where we are today, and i got to tell you, it leads to a question. It leads to the question I have the hardest time answering as a pastor. You might think the hardest question I have to answer is, if there is a good God, why does evil exist? Well, that's not an easy one, but that's not the hardest question I have to answer. Or it could be some variation on why do bad things happen to good people. That's not an easy one to answer either. But the hardest question I ever have to answer is when someone asks me, How can I forgive myself? I really never know what to do with that question. Now, I think I know what's behind it. I think people feel a a sense of ongoing guilt and and pain and regret. And so I sort of look through the fog of that question, and and I I go to answer those things. But on its prima facie basis, the question, how can I forgive myself, is a completely irrelevant question. And an impossible question to answer. See, the problem is our truth has lost our our culture has lost touch with the truth, and the truth is chilling. Sin is against God. Sin is against God. It is a violation of God. And when I say chilling, here's what I'm talking about. And, and Mary Alice and I were re- reading in devotions uh, yesterday, and yesterday morning, and I read this verse, and I thought it's so typical of our times. Moses is writing to a young generation who is about to go into Canaan, and he's challenging them to live a, a life that pleases God and not to get into sin patterns. And here's what he said to them. Those who hear the warnings should not congratulate themselves thinking I'm safe even though I'm following the desires of my own stubborn heart. In fact, Moses was saying to these people, listen, it is possible for a person to say, hey, I have a relationship with God, and I'm cool, and yet at the same time, be following the desires of their stubborn heart. I think this is almost pandemic in the church today. I am a Christian. I have God in my life. I do this, and I do that, but at the same time, they sleep around. And Moses is saying to people, who might live this kind of... Let me read it one more time. Those who hear the warning should not congratulate themselves thinking I'm safe even though I'm following the desires of my own stubborn heart. Moses said this would lead to utter ruin and take a deep breath. He said the Lord will never pardon such people. Why? It's practical when you think about it. They don't think they're doing anything wrong. Consequently, people who don't think they're doing anything wrong are not going to ask for forgiveness, so they're not going to turn from sin. And, and Moses is saying, "Just want to be clear on this, this would lead to utter ruin, and God will never pardon such a person." The problem with sin is that it exists that it's against God. And then in Hebrews chapter nine, verse 27, the Bible says, "It is appointed to die once to all people, and then to face the judgment." Somewhere on God's calendar is an appointment for the day that I'm going to leave this planet. But like the old Kansas song that you may remember from the 70s, we're not just dust in the wind. We will die, and then after that, the judgment, we will stand before God. And the next verse, Hebrews 4.13, tells us what that judgment will be like. The Bible says all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We have a lot of attorneys at New Spring I mean, and judges, and I've had conversations with them, and one of the most interesting conversations about, is about what evidence gets into a trial. And the lawyers will go back and forth with the judge on, is this admissible? And many times there's an absence of testimony, and a, and a guilty person gets off the hook, but the Bible tells us that all things are naked and exposed before the one we must give an account. God knows everything I've ever done. He knows every word I've ever said. He knows every thought I've ever thought. He knows what I would have done if I hadn't gotten arrested. So clearly, God knows everything about me. (laughs) Through the years, I've had people tell me, well, I stand before God. I'll tell him this and I'll tell him that. You won't tell God anything. (laughs) You put all that together... And I'm not trying to be unkind at all, but I think when you put all that together, the question, how can I forgive myself, really becomes sort of an irrelevant question because I won't stand before myself in judgment. My sin, although it may have caused me trouble, is not an offense against me. It's an offense against God. And the question is not, how can I forgive myself? The question is, how can I be truly forgiven Now's a good time to ask as we think about judgment and what the, the character of that judgment is going to be. It's a good question to ask, is there any way out of this? I mean, that's the first question I want to ask, is there any way out? I mean, this is too corny, I shouldn't say it, but back in my grandparents' generation, there was a comedian called W.C. Fields, and he was not a godfather. he lived a horrible life, but when he was dying, a friend was surprised to find W.C. Fields reading the Bible, And the friend asked him, what in the world are you doing reading the Bible? He said, looking for loopholes. (laughs) Well, we know there are no loopholes with God, but is there a way out of this judgment? Is there a way out of having to answer for everything we've ever done? Our series is called The Jesus Gallery, and we're looking at vignettes of Jesus' life. Today, we're going to pull out a vignette that happens the night before Jesus is arrested and crucified. Actually, the night of his arrest, the night before he's crucified. Jesus has finished the Last Supper with his disciples. And he leads them out into a garden, Gethsemane. And he begins to pray. He has asked them to pray with him. And he goes off by himself and he begins to talk to God. And when he talks to God, to his father, he says something that you and I need to focus on today. Going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may, look at the next two words, this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. A little later, he went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. I'm going to need about 10 minutes of your life and ask for your patience. Because what I want to do for the next few moments is I want to take you on a Bible journey to help us understand what the cup is. Honestly, as I grew up, I sort of had an idea that Jesus was looking forward to his death and using it as a metaphor. But as I opened the pages of the Bible, I discovered that this idea of filling a cup and having to drink it is an oft-used Bible expression. And so, as I said, for the next 10 minutes, I need your patience. But it could just be the most important 10 minutes you've ever spent in church. It might even be the most important 10 minutes of your life. When you open the pages of the Bible, time and time again, the Bible speaks of a cup being filled as being the sins that we commit and fill our lives with, and then drinking the cup, the judgment upon what we've done. Let me show you a few Bible places where this fleshes out. In the book of Exodus, Moses has gone up on the mountain to receive the law from God. And he's gone for a number of days, and the people down below are giving up on him and thinking, wow, we need to invent our own system of worship because Moses is not coming back. And to their credit and and at least understanding where they came from, they had spent years in Egypt and they'd gotten familiar with the Egyptian system of worship. And so having given up on Moses, they go to Aaron, his assistant, and say, we want you to make an idol for us. We want you to make an image. We want you to make a golden calf. And Aaron did, and the people got naked, got crazy, and got high. And when Moses came down from the mountain and saw what was happening, Moses was so angry that he broke the tablets of stone. And then he did something with the golden calf that I want you to read. In Exodus 32, verse 20, he took the calf they had made and burned it. Then he ground it into powder, threw it into the water, and forced the people to drink it. To my understanding, this is the first time this is mentioned in the Bible. But it's mentioned time and time again. In Psalm 75, the Bible talks about God. And it says, you hold in your hand a cup filled with wine, strong and foaming. You will pour out for every sinful person. Oh, that's all of us. Because the Bible says all of us have sinned. You will pour out for every sinful person on this earth. And they will have to drink it until it's gone. We're doing a series this summer called Clash of Dynasties 2, the Daniel Chronicles. And we're going to be talking a lot about prophecy of the end times. But this prophecy was given to Daniel in an era where God's people were taken away captive because of their sins. There was a prophet, Jeremiah, who preached during this time, not only to Judah, but to the other nations. And God said to him, I want you to take this message. Hear this. twenty-five, fifteen, book of Jeremiah. The Lord God of Israel said to me, take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom he sent me drink it. Well, someone could say, well, Mark, that's all Old Testament stuff. Well, then let me take you to the last book of the Bible, Revelation. Revelation tells the story that in the last days, there will be a unified one world system headed by a figure the Bible calls the Antichrist. And this system will be the inverse of God's system. It will be a cheap opposite copy of God's world. And even though the Antichrist has not been revealed yet, John said something that we covered in the Jesus life. He said, Antichrist is coming, but the spirit of Antichrist is already at work in the world. Well, I believe you and I are on the very outskirts of that last day's one world government. And what we're experiencing today is we're experiencing what ultimately is going to be fulfilled universally in the world. And that is Satan will have his own kingdom. And and we're watching that happen in our world. Wrong is becoming right and right is becoming wrong because it's an upside down world. But in the book of Revelation, God tells what's going to happen to this system. And I find this really interesting. Let's just read this together. This is in Revelation chapter 14, verse 8. And again, it's about what's going to happen in the future with this last day one world government. Another angel followed him through the sky, shouting, Babylon, that's the name for the system. Babylon has fallen. The great city has fallen because she made all the nations of the world drink the wine of her passionate immorality. Now, what I said a few moments ago leads up to this. We're living in a culture where very quickly we're being told that we must drink the Kool-Aid. Whatever, if right is now wrong, then the culture says you have to drink the Kool-Aid. If wrong is now right, the culture says you have to drink the Kool-Aid. If you don't, you're going to be excluded or worse. In fact, I was just watching a little while before the service how that Christians in Ivy League schools are being frozen out of programs because it doesn't fit their anti-discrimination program. And, and, and that's exactly what the Bible's talking about in the, in the last system People will be forced to drink the Kool-Aid that the Antichrist produces. But now what happens next? Then a third angel followed them, shouting, Anyone who worships the Antichrist and his statue who accepts the Mark 666, whatever that is, on the forehead of the hand, must drink the wine of God's anger. It's been poured full strength into God's cup of wrath, and they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever, and they will have no relief day or night. For they have worshipped the beast, the Antichrist, and his statue, and have accepted the mark of his name. It's throughout the Bible. You fill a cup, have to drink it. Adam and Eve filled a cup, they drank it. Pharaoh filled up his cup, he drank it. Sodom and Gomorrah filled up their cups, they had to drink it. And it doesn't even matter if people know they're filling up the cup or not. In fact, that seems to be standard operating procedure. People go on living their lives, filling up the cup. The expression that we hear a lot today is, I'm living in the moment. I understand there's legitimate usage of that, but there's this idea that I'm living in the moment, don't even have to think about what I've done in the past. And they don't realize they're racking up a bill. In the book of Proverbs chapter 30, there's a statement about a woman. It could just as easily have been about a man. But in this day of promiscuity where people hop from bed to bed and sleep around and think that there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, the Word of God speaks to that. It says, This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done nothing wrong. And that's what's going on in our world today. People, it's sort of like I, they don't think about the fact that they're filling up a cup that ultimately they're going to have to drink. God reminds Jeremiah of human nature in chapter 25, verse 28. He said, If they refuse to take the cup from your hand and drink, tell them this is what the Lord Almighty says. Not Madison Avenue, not Hollywood, not media, not Pierce. This is what the Lord Almighty says. You must drink it. And so it goes. You and I are filling up a cup, we've added to it every day of our lives. All different kinds of sins, idolatry, anger, lust, sloth, godlessness, selfishness. Day after day it feels. And the average person today just wipes his mouth and says, I've done nothing wrong. Oh, here's what we say today. I need to get on with my life. And that's just whistling through the graveyard. Graveyard. The cup remains, and you saw what I saw. We say, I don't want to drink it. Let this cup pass from me. I filled it up, but I don't want to drink it. I'm no worse than anybody else. I know someone whose cup is filled with worse stuff than mine. Everybody else says there's nothing wrong with my choices. I filled it up, and I don't want to drink it. Yet as God said to Jeremiah, if they refuse to take the cup and drink, tell them this is what the Lord Almighty says, you must drink it. Well, what would it mean for me to drink my cup? Well, the Bible supplies that answer. I know I'm going to die, and after that, the judgment. Well, what is the judgment like? Revelation 20, verse 11. I saw a great white throne, and him who seated, was seated on it. Earth and the sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were open. What's in the books? All the stuff I've ever done. All of us. The books were open. God doesn't judge someone without evidence. The books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Well, if you're feeling just a little squeamish with this message, put her there, partner, because when I think about my life and what that would mean, the only word that comes to me is hopeless. If God has recorded everything I've ever done, ever thought, ever said, the things that I know about that no one else knows about, if all that stuff is going to face me when I go to the trial, and I know that judgment for that means I will have to drink it and pay the price for my sin, which is to spend an eternity in hell, the only word that comes to me is hopeless. And it would have been, If it hadn't been for the fact that 2,000 years ago, a man went into a garden and he prayed. You know, I didn't say this in the other three services. I've heard preachers preach in songs that say when Jesus died on the cross that the devil had a party and Satan danced with Glee. I don't think that for a millisecond. Satan never questioned that Jesus would rise from the grave. He didn't throw a party when Jesus died. Jesus won this battle the night before because what Satan could not believe was that Jesus would go to the cross. He never could understand that. And so everything, he threw everything into it that night to bluff Jesus out of going to the cross. And so I want you to get this picture in your mind. As Jesus knelt down to pray, the most peculiar thing, he stared in front of him at the most poison, big cup in the history of mankind. What's unusual about that, he never put any poison in his cup. And yet he's got the most poison, vitriolic cup that we can imagine. Because you see the way God set this up. That night when Jesus prayed in the garden, I had the opportunity to take my cup and to pour it in his. And your cup was poured into his. And your cup was poured into his cup. And your cup and yours and yours and yours. Do you understand why now Jesus said, Verse 39, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but what you will. And then, my father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, it will be done. Why will I not have to go to the judgment? and face everything I've ever done because he drank my cup he drank my cup all my sins were poured into his cup and he drank it I get asked sometimes do you think there's any way to God other than Jesus you tell me what do you see you know anybody else who drank your cup? How do you feel about this message? <laughs> Many of you watching online or on television are here today. You're you're a believer. You invited Jesus into your life, but you feel the love and worship in your heart. Many years ago, when I first graduated from college, I went to be a pastor in Houston. And it was an inner city church, and one of the I had the ministry of working with a lot of young adults who were college students at the University of Houston and I remember one of the college students was george george was he, he was of a nationality that 's pretty well tied to a particular religion. His father was one was a very wealthy man in Houston, but I remember I had the privilege of leading George to Christ and he was in our he was in my ministry there and his father, like I say, who was mega wealthy, said to George, if you, if you get baptized, I'll disinherit you. And George said, well, you'll have to disinherit me. I've accepted Christ. And then his father said, well, okay. And George was dating a girl in our church. He said, if you marry this girl, then I'll disinherit you. And George said, we're going to get engaged. I mean, George was just, he was just following Jesus. Whatever God led him to do, he did. And I remember his dad had given him a brand new luxury sports performance car. And so George one night was taking me out to talk to people about Jesus. And and I remember I talked to a young college student one night and asked him if it's okay if I share the gospel. And he said, sure. And so I took about 20 minutes and told the story of Jesus. And at the end, the young man didn't want to accept Christ. And when I got back into the car, I looked over at George and big tears were coming down his face. And I said, George, what's the matter? He said, Mark, I was just wishing I was lost so I could get saved again. (laughs) And maybe you feel that way. You know, I could be talking to somebody here, and you've been in church for years, and it's like, you know, another sermon on salvation. I'm a Christian. I've never tried to make anyone doubt their experience. But you know what? I really doubt that. I really do. If, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus and you're thinking about Jesus drinking your cup, doesn't do anything inside of you, I'm not sure you've really accepted Christ. Maybe you have. I think you might have just been vaccinated. You know, a vaccination is you get enough of the virus to keep you from catching the real thing. You know what? I, I, I'm not worried about non-theists as much as I'm worried about people who've been in church for years and they're just churched out and somehow they've missed Jesus. Or it could be that you're here today and you just said, It's just clear. It's clear to me now. It's Jesus. It's not a religion. You're not asking me to be an adherent to a religion. It it is an understanding that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, and he came into the world, and he drank my cup. And that's why today, as much as we'd love to have you at New Spring, I'm not trying to talk you into joining New Spring. I'm not trying to talk you into changing some aspect of your life. I am just saying salvation is an understanding that by faith I go to the king, to the one who came into the world and drank my cup and paid the price for my sin and three days later walked out of his grave under his own power. So just take me to the king.
1: Truth is, I'm tired. Options are few. I'm trying to pray, but where are you? I'm all churched out, hurt and abused. I can't fake what's left to. So take me to the King, I don't have much to bring, my heart's torn to pieces, but it's my offering, just lay me at the throne.
0: I just, my, my prayer today is that nobody who hears this message walks away still holding your cup, your cup of sin. I mean, if Jesus is willing to take it, why not give it to him? If he's willing to take all of our guilt and our shame and our past and our failures, if he's willing to nail it to a cross, why walk out with it? Why leave? And my prayer is that everyone here will have a moment in your life and I hope that moment, if it hasn't happened yet, it's about to happen right now. Where by faith, you just say, Lord, take me to the King. I trust Jesus. I accept Him. I give Him my cup. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. These are not magic words, but they're words that... That reach out and if you want to pray with me, I I like Samuel, we'll pray each phrase slowly so you can decide if you want to own it personally and say it to God. <laughs> but if you pray, He'll hear you. You ready? Let's all bow our heads and pray. If you've already accepted Christ, pray for those who will be. Dear Father, I am a sinner, but I believe you love me. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. I believe Jesus drank my cup. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to make me God's child. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you just prayed that prayer, do us both a favor. All over our campus. There are guest service centers. There's information centers. And all you got to do is just stop by one and say, I pray with Mark. And there's a gift box for you. We've got prepared already. It's a Bible just like I preach from. You may have a million questions. I wrote a little book that answers a lot of the questions. There's some other great stuff in there. It's our gift to you. It won't cost you anything. It's not as wonderful as salvation, but it's as free. So. Just go to any of those places and say, I pray with Mark, and we would, we, would, we would just love for you to do that. Cannot wait for you to be back next weekend for the services for Palm Sunday. May God bless you. Thank God for the King.